welcome back to another episode of Adventuring Academy, the vodcast where we talk about all things tabletop and running the game. I'm your humble dungeon master, Brendan Lee Mulligan. With me, oh my goodness, we've been waiting so long to have this guest on the show, and he's finally oh. here. I truly needs no introduction. If you are watching this show, you have watched or listened to one of his shows. He is a former illustrator for College Humor. You've seen him in a million College Humor videos. He was the DM for Draga. He co-starred in uh, Cartoon Hell alongside Nathan Yaffe. He's a storyboard artist and writer for the Disney Channel show, Big City Greens. He is a player and dungeon master for Not Another D&D Podcast. Please welcome Mr. Caldwell Tanner! Ah! Here I come. I burst through uh, the big banner that says my name. I'm wearing full football pads. I don't know why. You didn't tell me to do this. I did it anyway. I'm not taking them off. <laughs> uh, yes, it's very important that you wear the football pads. Very important that you burst through the paper. Hopefully we can add that paper burst effect in post. Uh, that would be really key for us. Um, uh, yeah, right before we jumped on... Uh, uh, Caldwell also asked for his his primary credit to be Murph and Emily's friend, um, uh, which I that's also my credit that I'm the most proud of in my life as well. Um, right. uh, but that's true. Uh, Murph and Emily, too, to mention Toy's core cast members, also part of the uh, creative quartet behind Not Another D&D podcast, along with Mr. Tanner himself and Jake Hurwitz of Jake and Amir. So a whole college humor crew uh, yeah. as the creative force behind Not Another D&D podcast. Caldwell, holy smokes, I'm so glad to have you on the show. It's um, a delight to be here. Thank you so much, Brennan. Of and course. It's so good to know that I was uh, hotly anticipated. Homie, people are hollering for their Caldwell on that Discord <laughs> from dawn till dusk, my friend. Uh, the people want the Caldwell. <laughs> Um, so this is a fun thing of, uh, we've had a lot of amazing guests on the podcast who are D&D luminaries, um, who I'm always so like surprised and excited to talk to because maybe I haven't played D&D with them before. This is exciting for a whole separate reason, which is this is one of the first guests we've had on the podcast in a chunk of time that I've actually thrown down with this dude. We yeah. have rolled D20s together. Did I Sybin. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> in the somewhat flesh, exactly. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, first of all, I want to give a huge shout out. We should give this shout out a couple times throughout the episode, which is that NADPOD, uh, uh, the, like an unparalleled Dungeons and Dragons actual play medium. One of my favorite stories across media ever told is now gearing up for campaign number two, which right. is going to... Which is, we're calling it campaign two, when in reality, this is this is the second sort of like uh, long form campaign yeah. being damned by Murph, because Nadpod has had a bunch of amazing one shots and cyclists, not the least of which is Trinivale, DM'd Ooh. by ours truly. Um, uh, my dude, take us through like the story of your entry into this game, leading up to you grabbing the helm at Trinivale. Talk us, talk us through your D and D biography. Okay, um, my goodness. So, I had played D and D a few times before uh, I we started doing NADPOD. Uh, I played like one time in college in like a Skype campaign. Uh, I think it was like maybe fourth edition, that bad one that, that no one liked, I think, is the one that I played, where you had, it had like once daily spells that you could do or something like that. And it was like very, uh, like kind of like 
World of Warcraft inspired in a weird way. Um, so that was my first experience. Uh, and that was fun, but, you know, it was the sort of thing where, uh, you know, like any D&D campaign, we met like twice and then it uh, instantly dissolved. Um, and then I, I played uh, again like once or twice, but then like I actually uh, played with Murph uh, after I moved out to, to California. Murph did like a, a DM session for me and uh, my wife, Susanna, and some other folks. Um, and it was like the first time that I'd played like a very... I guess um, it was like the first time I had like seen it done like properly. Like we were like all like actually sitting around the table and like Murph had clearly prepared a lot. Uh, and it was like the first time I got a click for me. Um, and then uh, a while later, Murph invited me to be a part of not another D&D podcast. So going into the actual podcast, I had like some D&D experience and then like, you know, the general osmosis that you acquire from, you know, just being a part of, media uh and watching like i guess every episode of television has like a DD episode that they do <laughs> personally i'm a big uh proponent of the dexter's lab DD episode they do that's my uh <laughs> that's my uh, inherent foundational uh D cartoon experience um but yeah so like when i started on nadpod uh i had like a basic understanding but like i did not know the depths of the game at all. Uh, so I think like we talk a lot about Jake kind of coming into it totally raw, like totally fresh uh, and having like no experience. But I feel like I was just like a couple rungs above him on the experience ladder, um, which was honestly good. And it's like it's a feeling you'll chase for the rest of your life. Just kind of like getting to learn as you go and like not having any preconceived notions or like not even thinking. I wasn't even thinking about like class builds or like, you know, any of the the meta. I was just like there to uh goof around and uh make murph's life a living hell <laughs> with shenanigans <laughs> but um so yeah like after a few months of doing the show we launched a, a patreon to support it uh and one of the goals we set for the patreon was if we like you know get a certain amount of subscribers uh we will like do an extra episode every month um and we were all excited about that we were also like we set this goal so high. This is never going to happen. Like, this is just like wishful thinking. Oh, how joyous our lives would be if this actually came to pass. It happened very quickly. And Murph was like, there's no way in hell that I can do more than four episodes of the show a month, which is like a titanic amount of work. Uh, and he handles it so amazingly. He and Emily both, uh, like, because Emily does all the, the music for the show. But uh, so I, I volunteered. I had been planning on like just running a, a one shot because I was very interested in like learning how to DM. Uh, so I, I volunteered to do this one shot as like a live kind of live stream version of our show. Uh, and that's where I kind of came up with the idea for Trinavale. Trinavale was a name that I came up with uh, like most DMs in high school. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was like I had a, you know, when you're like, you're very excited to create, but you like don't fully have like the brain power, just like overall capacity to like do anything with your creations. So you just like, in my case, doodle a lot of like worlds and names. So it was like, you know, like, ah, like the holy city of Trinavale, like the angels descend upon it thrice a year to bestow their blessings. But ah, in the darkness of Avenar across the continent, forces are gathering. So... <laughs> 
Um, Avatar was also the name of my DeviantArt account. So it's just like it all it all comes back around. <laughs> oh man, deep cut. We are yeah. of a similar time, you and I. The de- just de- I was like, ooh, DeviantArt. Yes, I had a lot <laughs> of friends that spent most of their days on DeviantArt. Um, so that's that's amazing. The idea of bringing these things back from like high school era creations to Trinity Vale. Mm-hmm. So the Patreon starts, here's a question I want to ask because yeah. uh, 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 there is this spectrum, right? Which for the most part, I think is largely an aesthetic. It's not actually real, but Lord knows that the people who watch these shows are very happy to cast their favorite D&D players on a lawful to chaotic (laughs) spectrum, right? (laughs) Murph is about as lawful as you get. Like, Mm -hmm. like, Like when I am playing with Murph as a PC at my table, there are DM jobs that I just don't have to do. Like, I don't have to worry about pacing as much when Murph's at the table because Murph is going to chime in and be like, guys, we need to stay on task. (laughs) Yeah, Murph is the okay gang of uh, D&D players. (laughs) Yes, 100%, right? Now, the flip side is that that you have these chaotic players, right? Which isn't, which is not said in the pejorative or the negative because Mm. those shenanigans, as you have said, are the most joyful moments of the story where something truly wild happens. um, you are are proclaimed throughout the land as a champion of <laughs> chaos. Your people who love Natpod, you know, we've we've all heard the story of the Watchmen. We've all heard the story oh, of Goofin a God. We've all heard, <laughs> you know, the the legends ring far far and wide. So what I want to ask is this: as someone who whether or not you feel that in your heart to be true, gets labeled as this chaos player. What is it like to sit in the big chair behind the screen and to suddenly it's like, it's like you're no longer the rebel without a cause. Now you're like, okay, I I'm like, I'm, you know, at the, at the front of the class. Now I'm the one who's like setting the stage and setting the tone and everything. Uh, um, what was, interesting to you? What surprised you? Uh, what did it do to your play style the first time that you were behind the screen? I think like when I started DMing was also uh, at the point in the campaign uh, where things started to like get a little more serious. Yeah. Um, and I feel like the the room for goofs, while still prevalent, was like the consequences were growing greater and greater. So I think that like I was learning, oh, I can like get away with some stuff, but like there will if I if I keep acting like a jackass, like there will be consequences for this. So I think it almost like Trinaville was almost like a reaction to that in a way, where it's like we were like working so hard on this campaign and just trying to keep our characters alive. <laughs> and like Trinaville almost became this like vacation, this like kind of like a monthly respite where it was like this is where the shenanigans go. Like anything you wanted to do in Bohemia, but you were like, I don't want hard one and moonshine to die. <laughs> because, <laughs> because I thought it would be fun to go on a mine cart adventure. Um, or like, you know, because I thought it'd be fun to like, feed an army of bats or something like that. Uh, that's, that goes in Trinaville now. Like we're like, it, it became our little partition for like silliness and kind of uh, more lax uh, experimental gameplay. At least that was kind of like, what it became initially the first episode that we did um was 
basically just me like learning the rules and like actually a lot of the first episodes are like me just kind of like trying to be a dm and figuring out what that means and i think like that is why the campaign overall became kind of so lax and wacky is because i was you know um i was the substitute teacher i was letting a lot of stuff slide (laughs) (laughs) well i love the because that's the thing is there's that there's there's a lot of great studies about sort of like a universe, a given cosmos, mm-hmm. can have any kind of rules as long as those rules are consistent. And I think it's so great that, you, and I think that DMs often do bring their point of view, their style, their sensibility, their aesthetic to their world design. And as someone whose background is so steeped in cartoon lore mm-hmm. and, the, and the rich world of like animation and the physics of shenanigans and goofs and all kinds of like hijinks basically, there's a great quote from Who Framed Roger Rabbit, right? Where mm. where he's with, uh, uh, I'm sh- uh, I know mm. that you are well familiar, where he's with Eddie Valentine, they're handcuffed together, they've gotten into a closet, he's got the saw, he's sawing the thing, but the table they're on is wobbling, so Roger Rabbit slips out of the handcuffs to hold the table steady, and <laughs> Valentine grabs him and says, you're telling me you could have slipped out of those handcuffs anytime? And Roger Rabbit is like so frightened, he goes, no, only when it was funny. And, <laughs> and I thought of that and it's like, yes, that is silly as hell, but it's incredibly consistent. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things I think it's interesting about Trinity Vale is, is it's like, yes, shenanigans go here, but PCs don't need hard consequences. They need the consequence level of the world to be somewhat reliable. They need the logic to make sense. If this is a world where you drop an anvil on someone's head and then they accordion off and waddle down the street, <laughs> groovy, that's just got to be true across the board. You know, like like mm-hmm. that has to be the thing I can expect from this. Um, what are you like looking at Trinity Bell and like DMing shenanigans? Um, uh, were there like were there moments early on where you were DMing? Obviously, you're like picking up the rules, but uh, did you, were there moments where you found yourself stepping in to go like, actually, I am going to impose a consequence here, or I am going to like <laughs> step in and say that something maybe is not possible, or were you finding yourself most of the time being like, no, we are going to find a way to make this work? I think it was a little bit of both. Um, there's specifically an example I remember in like the third uh, episode we did where they're all riding uh, like motorcycles towards this like... Um, you know, uh, like disasters, volcano, this hollowed out volcano that they're trying to get to. Um, and I think at one point, Jake's character, Nyack, like said he wanted to stand up on the motorcycle uh, so that he could like fire an arrow, I believe. And I said, okay, but you're going to have to do like an a- a- athletics or acrobatics role. Uh, and he failed it. And I was like, you fall off. And he was like, no, no, I don't. Like, Dunkle, please. Just <laughs> um, the, the nickname they gave me, which is D- the Dungeon Uncle, because I, I like things to be a little looser, have a little more fun. Um, but that was like the first time when I was like, okay, like, you don't like the, the bitter taste of a consequence. So maybe we can work with this. I'll offer you a double or nothing where either you can like, try and backflip off of the motorcycle as you fall off and do some damage to one of the people pursuing you. 
or you can just like you can like, I basically let him like try the acrobatics roll again to either do double damage or to like lose the motorcycle permanently uh, and you know like make things harder for them going forward. So um, it's not exactly it's less consequence and more compromise, I guess this was my strategy <laughs> as time went on. <laughs> and that's like, I don't know, always the way I like to do it is like, to me, um, I'm always incredibly impressed by the way that, that you and Murph uh, and other DMs like run your games where there are consequences and, and big stakes. But uh, for me, I always just really enjoy getting together with my friends and making them laugh and trying to come up with like the zaniest, most bonkers thing that can happen. Uh, and like just seeing how we can like just build like a nasty little house of cards uh, and see how high we can get that bad boy. I mean, um, if, if we don't name this episode "Nasty Little House of Cards," <laughs> I don't know what we're doing here. Um, <laughs> Want to put a little jelly in that house of cards to make them stick better? Go ahead. Lick that. <laughs> yeah, pump, we're gonna get ants. It'll get a little nasty. Yeah. Okay, the ants house... are gonna be a part of it. The ants are gonna help build the tower. <laughs> That's, but I think that's what the real secret of this game, uh, right? And and D and D and of, I think tabletop in general is that no matter what the game tells you, the tone is supposed to be. The tone is going to be whatever the players at the table decide, Definitely. right? Um, and looking at Trinidad as an example, I think that the the biggest thing there is like setting your expectation because it's actually a very rare person who always wants the same experience every time they go out to engage in something. Mm -hmm. And I think that like, uh, uh, that's one of the things that's really fun about how many great actual play shows are out there is it's like, yeah, you're not looking like, I don't watch only one kind of movie. I don't listen to only one kind of music. Why would I consume only one kind of actual play? And uh, th with that agreement with your players, I'm wondering how explicit were you when Trinity Vale started of like, gang, we are looking for hijinks. We are looking for shenanigans. Like, let us, let us set this intention together to have this be the experimental space space where we explore that was that explicitly stated or did that just occur organically i think it occurred a little more organically because as i mentioned um like the first couple episodes like i the first like six episodes i'd say i had like a, a loose plan for where i wanted it to go but like they were literally like fetch quests uh, that i was using as a way to like learn the ropes of D D. so I, like i kind of like set up each episode as like this will be the episode where I like try out like, you know, vehicle encounters and stuff like that. And this will be the episode where like, I have like a big boss fight with legendary actions. I'm like, this will be the episode where, um, well then, you know, the second episode I did have time travel in it and that was a mistake. So, um, it was definitely a lot of lessons, uh, for myself and the players, um, about portion control and portion size. But I think as time went on, uh, we realized that it was kind of this like fun little safe space, this like, you know, um, this little like uh, area under the covers where you could like turn on the flashlight and have a little fun before bed, uh, if you will. Um, so, yeah, I think it kind of like naturally evolved into being more of a like, let's have fun. Let's try wacky stuff, like while still kind of like telling a, you know, a loose story. And then like, I think I and like the more time went on the more i realized it was like 
we weren't telling like, you know, a, a Game of Thrones. We were telling something more akin to like an Always Sunny or like I don't think anyone would watch Always Sunny if they like uh, stabbed Danny DeVito through the heart and like you saw like rats uh, crawling around on him and like just feasting upon his flesh. I mean, that now that I'm saying that, that could maybe be an episode of Always Sunny, but. But it would have the musical sting underneath it that makes you know this is all in good fun. Yeah, exactly. You should expect him to be back next episode. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think that that is, that is really fun. And I think that idea, too, of like creating a different tone or genre within that space, uh, especially as like this is a complement to the world of Bohemia. So you know that your yeah. listeners are consuming this as it, it, there is a sort of like um a food pairing that goes on here like hey Definitely. we know that you're probably also consuming bohemia at the same mm-hmm. time so come to trinity vale and get this different <laughs> taste or texture um that strikes me as something really really fun um, speaking about food uh i know a lot of people were watching uh, Crown of Candy while Trinavale was going on. Like when we switched from like the Bohemia campaign to doing Trinavale week to week, a lot of people were watching Crown of Candy and then like Trinavale was like their come down. That was like their cold shower. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny because I feel like aesthetically the worlds of Trinavale and a Crown of oh, Candy yeah. look very similar. It's like a lot of bright, saturated colors, mm-hmm. a lot of like, uh, uh but yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think, it, again, it's a very interesting thing because it, it's there's a certain amount of how much of like a given story is within your your like control or not. Like, like, for example, the four people that create Nadpot are four very, very funny people. H- how long did it take the main campaign to get to that first story beat where something really felt like the stakes got high and there were real emotions there. Like, do you remember the first moment where you were like, oh damn, we were all having fun and now <laughs> and now we're like, oh shit, we're like in a story. Because my experience as a DM is like, it sneaks up on people. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, uh, what was what was that first experience like in NADPOD and what, did, what sort of like, were you surprised when shit got real? I think it was probably when uh bev i guess this is a mild spoiler but like in episode 12 um beverly has an accident i'll say uh that is a direct result of a stupid thing that he does um and i think that was kind of like the opening of the floodgates uh because it was definitely the first time i remember like leaving that session uh and like my hands were shaking because i was like what have i done like i I did a stupid thing and like, I don't know. I need to text my friends. I need to like tell them I need to apologize like in game and out of game for what I've done. So like, that was definitely the moment where like, it it was like a full frontal assault on like all my emotions and uh, like mentally and physically. But yeah. And and I think it like kind of compounded after that, there was like definitely moments later on where, like, you know, everyone kind of had like a brush with death and it became even more and more serious. Uh, and then I think like that was kind of like that episode was right before we went to like our first like big city area in the game when like kind of the the main plot of the campaign kind of came into sharper focus. So um, well, I guess I'm not saying that like I'm responsible for the tonal shift <laughs> to my goofs, but like someone could say that, I guess, like, you know, scholars might suggest <laughs> 
um, but I think that that is uh, yeah. There there is a it 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 is wild when you realize like oh no I like I got in too deep and now I care and especially <clears throat> because you can do these things kind of as like a joke and it, there there is no amount of goofiness you can add to a character where it won't still sneak up on you that you're like fuck I really care if you know whatever my dumb you know like goofball goofball McGee if anything ever happens to goofball. <laughs> I will fucking weep bitter tears. Like, oh no, I've fallen right. for another character again. Goof Valentine McGee. Goof, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you figure out the name, you stretch it out, you like, you know, everything sort of comes together. So that's so, I, I love that. And I definitely have had those moments too where you like reach out and you're like, hey, um, when I like killed that iron golem, that was not like me criticizing any, <laughs> like an IRL text to your friends. Um, but it's so funny because the stakes, because we do love these stories and it's it's mm -hmm. an unusual thing to have a story that you and your friends are in love with that you have some control over. Yeah. And uh, it makes sense to do those check-ins sometimes because you're like, hey man, we've invested like a lot of our IRL time. Mm -hmm. You know, it would be, it would almost be the same as like, you know, we're watching Game of Thrones for like X amount of, you know, huge amount of years. And like, wait, one of my friends fucked up the ending to Game of Thrones? Like, <laughs> God damn it, like, sorry. I pulled a prank on David Benioff. <laughs> like, I'm so sorry, guys. Um, Just Daenerys yeah. texting all of her friends, like, so sorry about that whole burning of King's Landing thing. <laughs> like, I, I just thought it'd be funny in the moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, truly. Um, so, uh, uh, looking at um, your experiences now, you've been running Trinity Vale, you're gearing up for campaign uh, number two. Again, that'll be uh, premiering October 15th. Mm -hmm. um, uh huh. Uh, uh, gearing up for campaign number two. Um, uh, and you are, and you, you finished the story of Beverly. Uh, you yeah. concluded the first campaign. Yeah, um, he's dead. <laughs> horrifying. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, truly, truly horrifying. Um, uh, looking at your experiences within, um, uh, looking at your experiences within the game, going into DMing, going back into playing Beverly, back and forth. Um, were there any things that you, were there any ways that you adjusted either play style as DM or PC from what you were learning in the other play style? Well, I think. You know what? I think that you are actually um, a big influence on this uh, as well. Uh, I do think, like, by DMing, I think I didn't learn so much about play style from DMing. I think I just learned um, <laughs> respect and tolerance for Murph. <laughs> Incredible. But, um, but I do think, like, you learn when you have, like, so many characters that you're juggling and, like, you know, the, a big initiative sheet that you're looking at, uh, you learn a little more about, like, the, the action economy and, like, kind of how to, like, maximize moves. I think that, like, starting Trinavale is, like, when I went from just, like, pure improviser to, like, starting to get, like, a, a taste for the metagame. Uh, so when my, my whistle became wet for those juicy, juicy numbers. Um... <laughs> And I think that you were actually a big part of that when you were on the show uh, as as Deadeye, uh, because I think like before that, none of us knew about the help action. <laughs> <And then> like, <laughs> you just blew that wide open. Uh, and then I'm pretty sure like after that, we're like 
once an episode asking Murph, like, can I do a help action to give Murch yeah. uh, an advantage? <laughs> <laughs> help so, yeah. action is huge. You should always be helping uh, in life yeah. and in uh, D&D. <laughs> it's a good uh, philosophy. Yeah, help. You gotta help. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> um, uh, I love that so much. Mm-hmm. Um uh, that was so, playing as Dead Eye in that campaign was so much fun. Um, uh, and it was honestly, I feel like I learned a lot as a DM because I hadn't played in so long before y'all had me on as Dead Eye. And there were a couple of reminders there where I was like, oh man, not succeeding on a roll fucking blows. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like that, which you forget as a dungeon master, mm-hmm. if I succeed on a roll, great. If I fail on a roll, great. I'm not rooting for these monsters. It's like, it's whatever, like whatever the dice say goes. Yeah. Um, uh, as a PC, when you're like, my character is a fucking badass. That's a one. Guess <laughs> not. Um, <laughs> and you just, I, you know, you're like, no cognitive dissonance i wanted that to work um and all these lessons that i so glibly spout as a dm Mm -hmm. when i'm like you know stories are about successes and failures and there's adversity and the pinnacles and the rise and fall as soon as i'm in the pc seat i'm like or what could be more satisfying than an arc might be a constant never-ending ascent where each success is greater than the immediately preceding success with absolutely no dark night of the soul what about that dungeon master how about Um, this i'm falling but i'm falling up a flight of steps (laughs) and it hurts but i'm going up and i'm 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 succeeding but I, there's a lot of little ouchies, but I am going to get to my destination. How about that? <laughs> uh, precisely. So I feel like playing Dead Eye, I like learned that. I was like, oh, I like I, I need to put more <sighs> emphasis on like, like I'm remembering now that when one of my players rolls low, that fucking stinks. <laughs> like, yeah. it sucks. It's not think, fun. Yeah. I think what it is, is like as a DM... You're rolling so many goddamn dice. Yeah. You're just like rolling them nonstop, and you're just like, oh, and they crit, I guess, on you. Um, sorry. Uh, but like as a player, you're just sitting at the table, like waiting for your turn, being like, I can't wait to roll dice. Yeah. I'm gonna roll two dice. I found a way that I can get advantage, so I can roll two dice because I love rolling those dice because the number is in there somewhere, and that number is gonna speak its truth to me. And oh, I rolled two ones. Well, two ones, and I'm a halfling, so I'm lucky, but that's still a one. Uh, it, yeah, that's so, uh, yeah, uh, that's my turn. So, yeah, um, I know you just have so few dice. You know, the, 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 your rolls are so few and far between as a player, so you really got to you, – you put a lot of uh, stakes and, and emotion into them. A hundred percent. Um, one thing I want to talk to you about, because this is a big difference between Dimension 20 and NADPOD, uh, we had some theater of the mind on, uh, on Dimension 20, but for the most part, we use battle sets. For you guys, it's it's very funny, because I feel like NADPOD, both Bohemia and Trinityville, are incredibly visually rich settings. The descriptions, both from you and from Mirth, are beautiful and set the scene and provide tone and context. But... All of it's theater of the mind. So um, uh, is there any part of you that like 
uh, or what part of your like sees that as a challenge? And is there are there parts of you that see that actually as a strength when you're fully existing in that audio only world and imparting like logistics and s- spatial relationships only through conversation? It's definitely a strength in the fact that there's like an honor system constantly going on where you're like, would you say that you were within striking range of this monster? Be honest, be honest. Would you say you were? So it is like, you're kind of relying on each other to like help keep the map like fixated in your brain. Yeah. Um, And like, there's definitely times when we've been playing when it's just like, oh man, this would be much easier if we had a battle mat. But I do think it just like changes up the type of play you do. Like you're not, laying traps and you're not like seeking cover a lot of times you're just kind of like trying to describe a cool thing and hoping that murph will go with you on it <laughs> like it uh-huh. is a little more um like descriptive uh and like it's it's freeing in that way because like you could you know like it based on the description that is given up top like you have kind of like a limited paragraph and you get to parse that and like attempt to like extract uh, usable tools from it. Like, you know, if, if Murph describes like, um, uh, like, you know, floating rocks that you have to like jump across to get to your destination. Um, like you can like say like, I want to take one of the floating rocks and throw it at the snake monster or something like that. Like you can kind of like, you have to take what's there. And like, sometimes it's a little less, sometimes it's a little more. Uh, but yeah, I I think the big difference is kind of just like when you have a, a set battle mat, um, it's very concrete what you can do. Um, and like, I'm, honestly, I'm, I've always been like a little intimidated by the battle mats for that reason. Uh, I kind of like theater of the mind, but that's kind of just because that's what I've come up on. But yeah. Uh, I think that there's a definite, like, um, there is this, it's a huge difference and you do have to adjust your mindset in totality from mm-hmm. one to the other, because without the battle map present, it, a lot of it has to be arriving at really quick compromise and mutual understanding where you're going like you and I both know that neither of us knows really where my character was standing. So we've got to quickly arrive at what feels fair. And I think that once you get into that headspace, it actually is incredibly efficient. Just like, yeah, what feels fair in this moment? What? And in some ways you're right. You're actually freed up. It's like, Oh, I am not limited by, you know, this situation of like, uh, uh, you know, there there are certain things where true logistics, if they rear their ugly head, can mm-hmm. let you just be like totally fucked. We had a thing, even theater of the mind, we had a thing in a battle in sophomore year, a little spoiler for sophomore year, where a character was described as being like three quarters of a mile away from everybody else. And even though we were theater of the mind, it was like, okay, what's your top speed? And they're like, I cast expeditious yeah. retreat, I'm flying, I do this, I do that, I'm going. It's like, wow, you're going 30 <laughs> miles an hour? You'll be there in 22 rounds. <laughs> Like, it's like no you know like it's like yeah, yeah. Uh, you you forget especially in the way that like i think dimension 20 and nadpod play because we often interject uh during battle and like they're very the battles are very chatty yeah. they go quick like i think they i'm go, trying to remember it's six rounds no 10 rounds is a minute right yeah around is six seconds around is six minutes. seconds yeah uh, which is wild because everybody knows it was with the amount of banter going on, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, it's, it would be wild to imagine like, 
as a, as a physics engine, it falls apart pretty quickly. But <laughs> it's helpful for making battle narrative and kind of fun. Yeah. Um, it's very cinematic. Um, but I do, I love that um, that idea of like where theater might. The, the thing with battle maps is it just totally changes the relationship of people at the board. Because what a battle map allows you to do is to... Uh, have a third, in the same way that the dice are a neutral arbiter of something that is outside of the control of the dungeon master or the players. It's like, hey, we actually have a collaborator that cannot be bargained with. There is no wheedling <laughs> like this 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 collaborator of ours is going to give us a number and that's that, right? Mm. Battle maps are the same way. And you can have moments, I've had, well, a lot of times on Dimension 20, I've had moments where a PC will be like, cool, I am this far away from this person. I can see on this set, there's like a loop of chain right here. Can I touch that chain? And what am I gonna do? Be like, actually, that chain's a mistake. That shouldn't be there. Like, ah, that chain is there. Like, I like, yeah, you see it. It's extremely there. Um, so you find those ways of interacting, right? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, with the battle map that can end up surprising everybody at the table. And in the same way that that honor system expedites things, the battle map expedites things in a different way because there it brooks no argument. Like the physical space exists in real time. So it's like, I don't actually need to, I don't need to check in with you if this spell is in range. Mm -hmm. I can see that it's- You got the ruler, yeah. Yeah, we have the ruler right in front of us. Now, have um, you ever had a player um, get like, maybe something from a Lego set, like a tiny little medallion or like a ray gun and like hide it in the map when you're not looking so that they can like walk over there and be like, uh, can I do like an investigation check in this area? Uh, oh, cool. It's the, it's a ray gun um, from that ice, that ice Lego set, you know, with like the orange tip on it. Um, and I guess that's here now. So do I just, I get this, right? Do I need you to? This is the most this is the most Caldwell question of all time. <laughs> of all time. You just roll up to the dome with a whole box of Legos and I'm like, absolutely not. Under no circumstances. <laughs> under <laughs> No fucking circumstances. I'm wearing like the baggiest sweatpants. The huge, just like rattling with the crunch of plastic, and it's like, <laughs> okay, so uh, Caldwell, that's gonna be your character's turn. You've been like, wow, well, I guess I get in the Millennium Falcon and turn it on. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's so fucking funny. It's so weird that nobody else noticed this. I guess you know, my, maybe it was invisible. <laughs> Um, oh God, that's so fucking funny. <laughs> and there's funny. nothing you can fucking do about it. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, dude, that it is the battle map. There is no arguing with this. Um, that's so fucking funny. Um, uh, well, we, uh, uh, we actually have so many questions for you today. Oh my goodness. But, uh, but I wanted to ask one thing before we jump into it, which is that um, looking at your like creative CV before, uh, before starting NADPOD, like, um, both through college humor and, uh, you know, like d doing like storyboard and writing work for Disney and doing other, like uh, a lot of m different forms of media. Um, uh, it is wild to listen to early NADPOD. And then again, get to this point where Jake, who's like a brand new player, um, uh, you coming in also like the, this like first long form campaign. Yeah. Um, what is so 
what I love that really gets to me is the moments where we truly fall in love with like the the deep heartfelt stories like you know Bev's relationship with his father and hard hard one's broken heart and and playing honestly playing Emily's so little minor spoilers for Nadpot again playing Emily's brother is like one of the highlights of my D&D life because Emily is such an incredible role player and being able to just go toe to toe with her as these characters working through their relationship it was so much fun um uh was that like in terms because I don't think like like unless I'm getting your CV wrong this is like some of the first dramatic storytelling like after a lot of you guys coming from college humor where there's not a lot of drama going on yeah were you surprised by how easily that deeply heartfelt heartbreaking stuff came to you all uh or was it like oh my god I've been waiting to scratch this itch for so long I'm so glad to finally like sink my teeth into this it was definitely satisfying but I think it was surprising, like the first times it happened, like those first little inklings that like there was going to be drama and like a character in this story uh, kind of took me by surprise a little bit. Because, again, like I had had a limited experience, like even when I had played with Murph uh, and he had dimmed before, you know, I think we did like one or two sessions. Uh, and the main thing I remember is that uh, Emily was playing a snow goblin who um <laughs> Uh, interrupted a execution, I believe, <laughs> within like the first 10 minutes of play. So like, that's what I thought I was signing up for was just like, you know, seeing how close you can get to getting murdered uh, while, you know, while still like, you know, filling, you know, a, a royal guard's pants with fish, uh, things like that. So like, I was not expecting um, kind of like, these recurring story moments and like characters uh, that like, you know, we had either invented or like had an awareness of to like represent so much and to like become like uh, these like weights and like aspects of our personality. Um, yeah. It, it fully caught me by surprise. Uh, and I think like there's it, anytime it happens, like, you know, kind of be because of the nature of like D and D you kind of, even when you're not in combat, you're taking turns a little bit. Yeah. Um, especially when it kind of comes to like one-on-one -on -one stuff where like it's a character that you, you have a relationship with, like whether it's like uh, Bev and Erlen or Bev and his dad or like Hard One and Gemma, like you kind of, there's those moments when like you can see the other characters at the table are just kind of like, all right, this is now it's now it's a little private radio drama for me because like these because Murph uh, and this other person at the table are having a little carve out session. Um, and I think like those always were so intimidating for me because like I was not prepared for them. But like I think that's part of the fun. And I think that's like why I was hopefully able to portray it with some authenticity is because like I felt fully like I was like, you know, scrounging in the dark a little bit for like actual emotions in the way that you would if you were in a real conversation, and you were getting blindsided by information. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of how I tried to approach it. Um, you know, as, as time went on, I like as I learned more of Murph's tricks, I feel like I would, you know, spend time in car rides or like in the shower being like, what's he going to pull? Like, how is he going to try and make me sad? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I feel a deep kinship with Murph over that specifically. There's, a, I know that we were that you were talking about you uh, giving an example of Emily's play style of like, look at this snow goblin interrupting an execution. You also gave a backdoor insight into Murph because there was an execution in the first yeah. ten minutes of gameplay. So we definitely, it's like, yeah, that sounds like Murph. Um, uh, but Murph and I, I think, have a similar weird, a similar. Irish fixation on sadness, <laughs> on on like melancholy and sadness and heartbreak uh, that just keeps returning. And what's beautiful, I think, about that, first of all, you you and your fellow PCs knock it out of the park. The moments of storytelling in which Bev and Hard One, and again, it's it's really intoxicating because you see Jake playing for the first time in the very first episodes, right? And then when you get to the moments of like deep heartfelt characterization, what's so intoxicating about that is honestly the degree of like, oh, how beautiful is this facet of human nature? no matter how many goofs and shenanigans there have been, you don't spend this many hours with a person and not find that they have a beating heart in their chest and that they are capable of these really deep and profound emotions. And it makes all of the shenanigans sweeter. Like the 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 vastness of the different tones that you guys in NADPOD hit, where we're gonna swing from this wild bit of hijinks into this really thrilling combat encounter back to something truly moving and human, um, I think is a testament to the strength of the game, which is that by living in these characters, it's impossible to avoid them becoming that well-rounded, that three-dimensional. Um, and you guys fucking crush it. You knock it out of the park. Once you uh, sleep in a giant bed with your fictional friends, <laughs> there's no going back from that. That's the moment where you know that you are friends for life uh, and you do anything for them. Exactly. So exactly. One big rent bed. an Airbnb with your friends and make that covenant. <laughs> Uh, a hundred percent. Um, uh, we're gonna, um, uh, we're gonna jump into some great questions, uh, we got here for Caldwell. Um, uh, we got, uh, this first one's from Queenie. Thanks, Queenie. Um, uh, Caldwell, when you come up with a character, do you draw art for them immediately, or do you wait until you play a few sessions to fill out some more details? Um, I draw a mental picture. Um, and like, we'll maybe do some loose sketches. Uh, but yes, I, I do like, that's a very good question. I do like to wait until the character solidifies a little bit um, before I like commit them to, to paper. Uh, because yeah, I don't know. I think that maybe there's like aspects of them I don't know. Um, and also just like, in the same way that when you're like coming up with a character, you draw kind of like multiple poses for them. You see how they move. You see like what their silhouette is. Like, I think it, it takes a couple sessions for that to, to come into focus. Um, yeah. And if I'm if I'm being fully honest, I also like seeing um, how the fans draw the character sometimes. <laughs> yes, I love that. Yeah. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense, too. And I think what's interesting here is... Um, whether you have a full, clear picture of the character in your mind, they are not when you begin playing. There is something nice about keeping them volcanic for a little while. I think that's good. That's a good idea as well for a character's personality, even mm -hmm. like 
you write write a full backstory, have a clear idea, describe them. But the nice thing again about theater about theater of the mind is that there is always a little bit of negative space, right? No yeah. matter how descriptive you are in the text of a novel when you describe a character, there's always still some like gestalt space that the reader has to supply for themselves, right? You can you can have you know, 10 paragraphs describing a character, but there is still gonna be something to the person constructing it for themselves uh, unless you're able to render it like a full picture of them, right? Yeah. Uh, so when you describe, then, and that's true of a character's personality as well in a lot of ways. And I think that like giving yourself a couple sessions to find like, okay, I thought that my character was pretty gruff and terse, but I find <laughs> that as I play them, that's uh, not, what this character is like after all it's true yeah you you have to wait until you figure out how your character isn't cool because you go in thinking that your character is cool and then like when you reach that crossroads where you're like oh my character is a dummy uh and a and a loser and a fool and a cretin um that's when you can start drawing the character (laughs) once they've been (laughs) laid low i think is (laughs) is the moment at which you're ready definitely yeah, I love that so, so much. Um, uh, uh, this next one comes to us from Noah G. Thanks, Noah. Um, Brennan has discussed how voices and improv have translated to and improved his DMing. Is there anything you have learned in creating art and running Draga that has translated into how you DM more standard campaigns so well? Thank you very much, Noah, for those those kind words. Um, I do think... Uh, Yes, like the artistic background that I bring definitely helps me um, because I, I think that like when I when I play, I, I do like that's like one of my favorite parts. Going back to the theater of the mind thing is like you have to be descriptive um, and it's almost like you are kind of uh, tying a hand behind your back almost, just, at least for me, because like I'm used to working in a visual medium and like having only your words uh, to describe something like means that you kind of have to rely on them to make things more bombastic and, and visual and vivid. Uh, so I think that like, I definitely tend to overcompensate. And I think that's why Draga and, and Trinavale have kind of like a similar energy, let's say. Um, but yeah, I think that like, and that, that was always, you know, the, in my, in my history as an artist, like I've rarely work alone either. I really, really enjoy getting to like work with a team like I did on Big City Greens and like at Draga and at Drawfee. Um, like getting to put forth an idea and then see how others respond to it and how they tweak it or like improve it uh, often is really kind of like the, that's the sweet spot for me. Um, that's that sweet Sherry Jam uh, for for this fella. So like, that's that's what I'm looking for when I play and when I DM. Um, and yeah, any 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 way I can bring that out, like bring out that kind of like that big softball, that underhand pitch uh, that like one of a, my players can like hit out of the park in a, in an unsuspecting way. That's what it's all about for me. Gang, we're waking up in the morning and we want that cherry jam. And, we want that cherry jam. And and listen, we know there's cherry jam out there. And the question is, how do we get it? How do we get our hands into that jar of cherry jam? This fig. I don't want fig. I don't no. want peach preserves. Yes, and I don't want cherry jelly. I said cherry jam. <laughs> A normal thing to request. <laughs> 
Um, I'm a normal no. man. I like a normal breakfast. Bring me my cherry jam. Well, the cherry jam, and I'm going to eat big heaping spoonfuls of cherry jam straight out of the jar until it's empty, and then I'm going to smash it on the side of my head, and I'm going to sprint to work. <laughs> All right? <laughs> Get that toast out of here. Don't need it. Get it out of here. Um, <laughs> um, I love that. And I think, too, that there is a um, – I love that, that idea, too, of, like, pitching an underhand softball to your players, right? Uh, that idea of, like, wanting their success uh, in those big ways. And I think it's true that, like, uh, everyone brings different – influences right to dming me and murphy talked about the fact that like his storytelling i think like so much of murphy's in these like beautiful like the almost like the canon of incredible rpg video games like the mm -hmm. kind that have incredibly moving storylines but when i see murph tell these stories it's like incredible moving storylines and then a lot of thought about like encounter design quest design adventure design and he's talked to me about like how clear it is in the stuff that i run of coming from like mythological like you know uh, uh different like world mythoses mm -hmm. and studying like you know ancient religions and and a lot of like the classic like fantasy literature stuff but within all of that i think both myself with dimension 20 you and murph as dms for nadpod coming through college humor which is i think such a awesome pressure cooker for working a with incredible people like everyone i've ever worked with that was at college humor some of the nicest human beings on earth Definitely. but it uh it everyone from there has that attitude of like hey everyone here has the intention of helping you make the thing you're working on better mm -hmm. um and that is something that dnd &D absolutely necessitates is that idea of like everyone at this table with me wants me to succeed even in moments where we might be playing the playing pretend conflict with each other everyone's rooting for each other yeah it's the hardest thing i've ever had to do because like normally you can kind of get feedback and uh like advice from folks uh, as you're working on it but like the people i trust most about this like cannot <laughs> be let in it must <laughs> remain a secret to them it's very tricky yes uh, uh, it's super hard. I think that's why there's there's like a, you know you, there there is some reaching out. I think it's very funny when I think like, like every DM I know that has like DM'd for an actual play has had some moment or another where they reached out and they're like, you have no idea what's going on in this campaign I'm running, but I can't talk to any of the people. <laughs> <laughs> that I can't talk to any of the people that I would normally talk to. Yeah. Um, it's funny. It's, it can be like a lonely, that kind of DM can be a little bit lonely in that way um, uh, where you're like, who do I turn to for advice? <laughs> um, uh, speaking of DMs, this next one comes to us from Suspicious Sea Slug. Thanks, Suspicious Sea Slug. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, was it nerve-wracking or comforting to have an experienced DM like Murph playing in one of your first forays into DMing? Parentheses, Trinivale was dope, BTW. Hey! Hey! Thank you. Um, I want to rewind a bit uh, and bring up one of my favorite comparisons I ever heard uh, from a fan who was describing uh, the difference between Bohemia and Trinivale. I believe they said that Bohemia was like uh, Final Fantasy VI, and Trinavale was like uh, one of the side Kingdom Hearts games. <laughs> so like, 
<laughs> yes. So yes. like memorable and beloved, but like that was the moments where like it's clear that they've gone off the rails. Oh, but God. um going back uh to that question, it was so wonderful and so calming uh having having Murph there because uh I I made like no uh I made like I, I did not like even like want to pretend that I knew what I was doing while we were playing the game. Um, I like always was like happy to like reach out to him and ask questions. And I kind of like wanted it to be presented that way, especially in the early episodes that like, I'm learning how to do this. Uh, Murph is here. I'm going to like ask him uh, which saving throw this would be and, and so on and so forth. And like, uh, it was, it was super helpful. And like, I, I really recommend it. Um, if you've got a, a DM who's, who's willing, because like, I don't know, like, it's it's just like there's so many rules. <laughs> there's like there's a whole bunch of them. They they put them in a book. It's very thick. Um, so if you've got another person there that like knows the rules, like absolutely lean on that. Don't use every resource. I will also say if you are if you are watching this and you're running a game and you're worried about having a dungeon master at your table, please don't worry about that. As someone who longs to play <laughs> so much. There is literally no amount of non-proficiency at DMing that would scare me away from playing at someone's table. Like, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's like, because what makes a DM fun is if they're excited about their story, yeah. mastery over the rules has so, that's a conversation. You can take 10 seconds to look something up online. Like I do, like I true, as someone who knows the rules relatively well, uh, uh, I would say like it it doesn't affect my enjoyment at all if someone is like proficient in that section of the game. Yeah, I remember Emily's for uh, one of Emily's first times at Bat DMing was the awesome Arctic sort of Nordic haunted mm. fairy tale uh, one shot that she ran where it was it was me Murph you Siobhan. Um uh, which also was a very funny uh, player moment in that I described my character first and described him as being very big, only to have the two people that went right after me describe their characters <laughs> as being like in excess of eight feet tall. And I had to like <laughs> pipe in and say like, I guess I'm kind of small, actually. Um, <laughs> You're kind of a shrimp. Wow. A shrimp, actually. Um, uh, but... Um, uh, Emily was so fucking good as a DM in that one shot. And it's one of those funny things where I think people put a pressure on themselves when they have DMs in their party to be like, oh, I'm going to like, you know, what is it? Like, I, I am worried about my mastery over this rule set when really it's just like, oh, I'm so excited to live inside of a story. Yeah. I'm so excited that I'll be able to run around and do hijinks. Like, yeah, um, when you spend all day like pulling the big crank that sends people off on the roller coaster. When you get to go on the roller coaster, you don't care how good the roller coaster is. You get to go on a roller coaster. You don't got a crank anymore. Uh, Caldwell, a thousand percent. It's so, <laughs> it's, it's, it's so, so, so fun. And also again, I think that like, like most things, um, uh, the, the nerves surrounding, uh, like, you running a story for your friends is an act of service and kindness. They will love you for it. If you have nerves around that, you're watching this and you're like, but will it be good or not? Uh, like, 
I think the the only times I have ever had someone run a game and I was like, that was so-so, was when the person was actively antagonistic and seemed disdainful of everybody sitting at the table, which only happened when I was like a little kid playing with people who weren't <laughs> close friends, right? Like, right. you know, like if you're playing with friends, you're going to have a ball, right? The rules, eh, the, you'll, you will get them in time. It's not, a, it's not as high a priority as just telling a story with your pals. Yeah. Um, um, our next question comes to us from Rain Solo, one of our mods. Thank you, oh. Rain Solo. And thank you for all your work as one of our mods. Um, hey, Caldwell, did you Hello. know that the way we perceive the Earth to be flat, people would perceive a cubed planet as a bowl? As Is there further explanation? This is a total fucking mystery to me. I have okay. no idea what's going on with this question. Let me, let me fill you in, and this actually kind of is a good way to illustrate the vibe of Trinavale without really spoiling anything, mm -hmm. which is that in... The fourth episode, I believe, um, the characters went on a trip to the moon, yes. um, like you do in the fourth episode. Uh, it was where Emily's uh, characters, like family, lived, uh, and they were like hunting down a relic there. Um, and as they were like headed towards the moon, I think like one of them said they looked at uh, Trinavale, the the planet, and remarked that it looked like a cube. And it just made me laugh so much that I was like, yep, that's canon. Trinavale is a big old cube. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That is so, so funny. So I guess what Rain Solo is saying here is, did you know that the way we perceive the Earth to be flat, people would perceive a cubed planet as a bowl, meaning that if the geometric sides of the cube mm -hmm. were actually flat our perception would be that the horizon was like curving up away from us. I guess so. Which is horrifying would... to consider. Yeah. I mean, it, it reminds me of like, um, you know, sci-fi where people are living in one of those cylinder cities, uh, like or orbiting the earth. And like, it would be kind of cool. Cause maybe, uh, you could, you could play some like funky kickball where like the ball goes up and around. But, uh, it seems, very interesting. It's not something I thought about, and I would love more information about this. Um, and I'm sorry that I didn't bring it up in the campaign proper, that there was never a moment where I was like, you look out over the vast horizon, uh, it's bowl-shaped embrace, like a giant <laughs> sea of milk, and you are the flakes, content but restless, for you know that there's adventure awaiting you beyond the rim. <clears throat> like, that's just, I, I, that's a missed opportunity. That's a missed shot for me, and I apologize. <laughs> Uh, yeah, those weird physics are so, so fun. There's a lot of places, that, like, I remember there's a, a city in the Planescape setting called Sigil, which is this big interplanar city, that the city is, there is a torus, which is a fancy word for, oh, yeah. for a donut. It's a donut shape. I read, and, I read the N.K. Jemison uh, Broken Earth trilogy. I know what a Taurus is. <laughs> there you go, exactly. So there's this Taurus. Uh, uh, God, that series is so good. Uh, the fifth season is so fucking good. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the city of Sigil is on the inside ring of the Taurus, mm -hmm. uh, 
with gravity always extending into the stone of the torus, which means that the city, the spires of the city's buildings are always facing each other because it's it's like on the inside of the ring. So if you walk oh, around, oh yeah, right. So it's like it's like if you had a donut and on the inside of the donut, <laughs> buildings were built. Uh, just pointing at the other inside, you know, the, the, the like there's nothing on the actual exterior, just in that little interior racetrack on the inside of the donut hole. Buildings, little spiky wow. buildings are all kind of pointing. So if you're in that city and you look at streets, the streets like inception curve up away from you, eventually being directly up above you, pointing straight down at you. Um, so really I guess true. you could just like climb to the top of one building and then like whoop and just flip onto the other one. It's yeah, you're like, should we just build a bridge? Because it this would <laughs> this would shave two and a half hours off my commute mm -hmm. if I could just like leap from one building top to another. Yeah. Uh, moving on to the next uh, item on the agenda, can we just call it a donut? <laughs> can we just call it a donut? <laughs> the ancient Taurus of Sigil has been so named since the dawn of time. It's a donut. When you say Taurus, it sounds like you're describing a car. Seize this man. He would seek to... Ah! <laughs> I don't know. I have no diminutizing of you the glories. You put donut handcuffs on me. Those are manacles, good sir. <laughs> um, uh... <laughs> Uh, now to enjoy a delightful circular confection. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, very. The truth. <laughs> uh, very silly. Um, uh, uh, whoa. Uh, yeah? This is a very. This yeah? is a fun one. I like this question. This one comes to us from Robert Z. Robert Z asks, what overpowered homebrew magic items would you have given Deadeye if he was a character in your campaign? Whoa! Oh, in, in Trinaville? Oh boy, oh boy, this is great. Okay. Um, so I'm thinking about Deadeye. Um, Deadeye, Seemingly felt OP in the moment because of Brennan's mastery of uh, <laughs> of multi-classing. But you know what? You know what I would do that would uh, make uh, Deadeye feel even more uh, like overpowered. Um, this is insulting to Brennan. You you played it very well. I'm just saying like if no. I wanted to, like yeah. if I wanted to like make you even more of uh, like an outrageously overpowered character, what I would do is I would give you an item that allowed you to triple class. <laughs> I, it yes! would be like a, I, I'm picturing like a little mirror or something like that, like a little mirror amulet. Um, and what would happen is you could like flip the mirror, you could spin it uh, and it would invoke an alternate reality where you had a different, uh, a different life so that you could switch your multi-class in the moment. Oh my God, that's so fucking cool. I want that so bad. I want that so bad. This brings me to a very interesting piece of, of character. First of all, I would love for Deadeye to be in Trinityville world. I feel like what, yeah. like, I'm trying to think of like what I would want to make him to like fit into the Trinityville vibe more. Like, 
like what would like a like what would like a a wild shenanigans heavy dead eye be? Maybe the mirror would flip him to warlock and his guns would be all yeah. eldritch blasts. I do like good. But maybe also um you're like a an arcane archer and you just throw your bones. <laughs> you just huck bones at people. I mean, let me tell you something here, sweetheart. <laughs> I'm the I'm the deadliest bone slinger in the world, all right? <laughs> I get these. Yeah, it's like it's like, I, and then his his terrible secret is that like he doesn't ever get the bones back. So it's just like <laughs> I gotta be real. <laughs> I gotta be real careful. I'm deadly as hell. I got maybe 15, 20 more shots. Career. I'm talking. Oh, yeah. Shot of metatarsals. <laughs> <laughs> um. Oh my god. That's, that's so and cool. that's your journey, is that you're like trying to find. Oh, you're robbing graves to get more bones. You're like trying to find uh, the infinite bone stone so that you can like <laughs> generate bones. Tell me, have you heard the legend of the infinite bone stone? <laughs> I drop yes. my drink. <laughs> Drops your drink. Whole sal- the guy playing the piano in the corner of the saloon <laughs> just goes quiet, cigar falls out of his mouth. <laughs> Everyone look alive. We got trouble. Um, <laughs> I think you should leave, sir. <laughs> the bone stones close by. Um, <laughs> in the uh, yeah, get ready for uh, Trinavale Hunt for the Bone Stone oh coming 2021. <laughs> um, I love Good. the idea of like of like a pitched final battle in Trinity Vale where the character has like got thrown all of his bones and now it's just a fucking like a shoulder joint with an arm capable of throwing. And his last sacrifice is to just fling itself in defiance of physics. How did it throw itself? I don't understand. Where is the kinetic energy? How is it forming the... Um, So, so silly and funny. Um, This brings me back to a little piece of old D&D lore. which were, I, I ran into them back in 3.5, something that I always wanted to do, which were these things called gestalt characters, which were Ooh. characters that, um, they weren't multi-class. You would pick two classes and your base attack bonus would be whichever of the two classes was better. Your mm-hmm. saving throws would be whichever of the two classes was better. Oh. You would get all the class features of both. And so you could be, in, instead of being like a fifth level fighter or a fifth level wizard, you would be a 10th level of both of them, right? So these made very overpowered characters, but they were very, yeah. very fun to contemplate. What was so interesting about them though, is that, um, in the text that kind of dis- explained them or described them, and one of the things they were that they were nice for was if you had a really underpopulated party. Let's say you're a dungeon master, you have only two friends that are playing the game, and it's like, cool, you're going to be wildly underpowered. Like no matter what two classes you pick, it, okay, it's like a tank and a healer. We have no arcane spellcasting ability, right? Like you know something in that vein, right? Um, yeah. What was nice about it is you can sort of round yourself out. So it's like, okay, we have like a wizard cleric and a fighter rogue, right? Um, but what the text said that was so interesting that really changed my perception of the game is it was like, um, on average, a, gest- a gestalt character is roughly as powerful as 
uh, a character two levels higher than them. And you're like, really? And they're like, yeah, they're like a, a Gestalt character. Like a 10th level Gestalt character is about as powerful as a 12th level normal character. And mm. and the, the, the reasoning behind that is they basically said, look, the limitations on a character's power are never really their class features. It's usually how many actions they can take in a turn. Like, yeah. really, like, like how much, like, uh, and what they said too is like, a lot of why a multi-class character is is going to be effective has to do with you, the player, being able to make incredibly optimized choices. Like, do you as a player at the table, like let's say that you have full spell casting progression and a full fighting ability. Are you always going to know round to round, which of those two options available to you is going to be definitely the most optimal? Mm -hmm. Because you're still only getting to do one. You're either attacking or you're casting a standard action spell. So like, yeah. even if you have all of, like things that tend to make a character overpowered, are you, which is, which is actually a good, I think this is a good piece of advice for DMs. Things that improve your player character's abilities and make what they always tend to do even better, that's how you break a game. Things that give your characters a suite of abilities that are outside of their normally optimized thing are almost never going to break a game. In other words, making a character more versatile is only going to break your game if the PC does something really cool and clever. And if your PC does something really cool and clever, mm -hmm. let them break the game. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, so that 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 was very clarifying to me of like games get broken when you have your axe swinging character and you make their axe always do double damage and now it's like cool this character is effectively doing twice as much damage as normal but like I, I have a warrior in my long running home game that has a suit of armor that lets him cast a bunch of lightning spells and the honest it's it's very it gives it gives a full fighter a whole suite of spell casting but the the the, the sort of like uh, thing we realized is like that's almost never the optimal thing to do and when yeah. it is the optimal thing to do it just feels really fucking cool and why not um, yeah so that's like you might run into another person wearing a suit of armor and then boom it's lightning time and, and maybe inside that suit of armor a metal skeleton uh oh uh oh they're absolutely boned and they're actually bone. And then we take the bones, and now you're looking at at the the <laughs> ultimate bone swinger again. These bones are all charged up from all the lightning. <laughs> um, electro bones. Electro bones. Yeah, the fabled electro bone. My God. Um, so so funny. Um, uh, uh, bones can power a car. Go ahead. Um, wait, I wanted to ask. By the way, it, yeah. But, uh, uh, because this is going to be coming out, um, uh, is there anything? Because we we talked about saying a, saying a little bit of this on air before we recorded. Is there anything you are allowed to tell us about campaign two, or is it all secrets? Is it all secrets time? It's uh, pretty secrets. Um, I don't want to uh, reveal anything uh, that. Uh, would uh you know i i don't want to go against uh, the party and reveal things out of turn uh but i will say um i can say confidently that um my character will be um an alchemist uh artist 
that is the class that I'm going to be playing. So that's, a, that's a little tidbit. That's just a, a little dollop of cherry jam for you all. What a scoop. We love it. Um, uh, uh, well, I love that. And first of all, I always give a little clap to anybody <laughs> playing an intelligence-based character. Thank it, you. It makes a DM's job so, so easy when there is someone around who can nail those history arcana and investigation <laughs> checks. Uh, oh, baby, yeah. is that helpful? I think like the tricky thing for me is figuring out how to make my intelligence specific and in a way that works while remaining an idiot dummy that doesn't know things in real life. That's the, the eternal challenge for me. You're like, well, my character would know this because you know, they've traveled around, but like, I'm going to need you to tell it to me because I don't actually know. Yeah. That's always the interesting thing is, is for some, but, but what's so interesting about that is um, when a character accomplishes a feat of strength, that is something which is always narrated by the dungeon master and the dice yeah. as well. But for some reason, when it's like a lore check, we're, there's always that thing of like, but I want to really know it in my own brain. <laughs> um which is why every once in a while, you know, I'll like do a big lore dump email before a session and be like, cool, you just say all this shit. Like I've pawned that stuff like that off on like Zach Oyama in the past in A Crown of Candy. He did this incredible, beautiful, tender, emotional exposition scene. And I was like, I got to do that shit all the time. It's cool to not have to talk. Um, yep. <laughs> uh, it's also fun to give your players little treats at the table. Like, you got like a little like scroll that you can hand to them. Who doesn't love getting a scroll? Feels good to get a scroll. Absolutely. Um, uh, that's so, so fun. Uh, and Alice is so cool. I'm so excited to see you play an, an artificer class. I feel like yeah. wizards were so lonely as the only intelligence based class for a while. Glad to get an artificer in the mix. Very um, excited. Uh, it's fun. Like, you can basically the thing that got me excited about it uh, is like, number one, I'm, I'm excited to be playing like a healer class. Uh, it's like fully stepping into healer as opposed to like Paladin, which is a little more like semi healer. But you can also make your own armor and like magic items, which is really fun. Like there's yes. like a whole table of stuff you can make. Uh, and it just feels very fun for your your companions to go to bed. And then you wake up and it's like, good morning. I made you a shield. <laughs> It is so cool. Oh, yeah. that's a, it's a very sweet impulse. I can't wait to meet this very generous new character. <laughs> um, uh, no, it's really wonderful. I think Artificer is so incredibly cool. It's such an awesome archetype of that like tinkerer, so problem solver, yeah. magic, emancy, arcanotech character. Um, I love that. And I think too, I, I, I just always want more intelligence-based characters. I think that's really fun to engage in the world and the campaign setting in that way. The character I really want them to bring back, there was this random character in 3.5 called the Factotum. A bad name for a character mm -hmm. class does not describe what the character is at all. But uh, uh, Factotum was was basically the, the archetypal Indiana Jones or like sort of like Milo from Atlantis um, of like, for lack of a better word, an adventurer. Like the Factotum yeah. was like, I study old dungeons. I 
I'm like in, an intelligence-based character. I'm not primarily magical. I'm almost like an intelligence-based rogue that from time to time can have moments of genius and luck and insight. And I mechanically reflect just kind of like the plucky hero character. Like, I'm, I'm not a big muscle-bound tank. I'm not like magical or occult. Uh, I'm just like an adventurer. Um, yeah, I have uh, tenure. I have, to, I have tenure. Um, uh, would love to see that, like that, like non-magical intelligence-based character, like a skill, yeah. like a skill-based roguish, but instead of being dexterity-based and kind of like a thief-criminal vibe to it, mm -hmm. it's just like I am a skillful intellect-based adventurer. Um, That's such an interesting idea. I'm trying to think like how you would appropriately give them skills and abilities to make up for the fact that they wouldn't have magic. I guess, would it be like, I, I, I'm sure you've thought about this or like, what? how did the factotum do it? The, the original factotum allowed you to do, had some fun abilities in it where you basically had like, these things called like inspiration points, which oh, were, great. you have a number of points. So in other words, the, uh, mechanically how they worked was, um, First of all, it was kind of an early version of a short rest character back in 3.5 days where their stuff refreshed scene to scene. And so a lot of it was sort of this thing of like, the character is very good at figuring out something quick and tricky. And then if the battle turns into a real slog, they get dramatically bad. And that's kind of fun of like, I'm going to throw sand in your eyes and jump yeah. on a vine and push off and I got going to figure out a trick. Um, but I mean, a good, a good amount of Indiana Jones is him running away. So yes. like that, that checks out. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. But they had this thing called brains over brawn, which was uh, they could add their intelligence modifier to any of their strength or dexterity skills. So that they add like intelligence to athletics and acrobatics, which is a lot of them being like, okay, like instead of like heroically vaulting myself, I see that that chandelier is connected to yes. that, cut the rope, shoom, <laughs> and off I go. Um, that was a very cool part of the character. Um, they could add intelligence to damage rolls in certain instances and, and um, uh, uh, they had a thing called like insightful fighting. And then the main thing was they had a lot of ways of just being really good with their skills. They had like, they were really focused around like skill checks and skill challenges. Um, they weren't necessarily a very combat oriented character, uh, which is, was kind of cool about them. Yeah. Um, I could see this being like a whole like class in and of itself. Cause like, even off of that, you don't even have like an accurate representation of like a Sherlock Holmes character. And like that could definitely fit in there as well. Like you could have like, you know, gentleman detective, gentleman thief, gentleman uh, adventurer. Like they all, they're, you know, gentle person rather, but like Sherlock they all is, fit in there. Sherlock is extremely within the factotum vibe. That idea mm -hmm. of like, of like, I get by on my wits and it's not through magic. Like yeah. <laughs> that sort of character archetype. Um, Just all he needs is a little bit of opium and I'm good to go. <laughs> <laughs> Through wits, intellect, careful deduction, and a big old helping of opium, I intend to solve this case with the help of my friend, Dr. Watson. What was that last one you said there? What was the last <laughs> thing you mentioned? <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, let's see if we can jump through. Uh, we have we have uh, uh, one or two more questions I'd love to jump oh, into. Sure. Yes. Um, this one's from Emma. Uh, mm -hmm. Emma says, 
uh, Caldwell in Trinityville, you used they them pronouns in addition to binary pronouns for a lot of NPCs. Was this intentional? As a non-binary person, it made me incredibly happy to hear my pronouns being used on characters so often. So thank you for that. How do you make sure you're being inclusive of identities and different groups of people that you may not have playing at the table? Uh, Emma, thanks so much for the great question. Um, that is a, a very good question. And thank you so much, Emma. Um, I I will be honest, like when I started, like when I was a like a newer DM, um, it was something that I defaulted to a little more um, when I would have NPCs in an environment because I yeah, a lot of times like would not have assigned them uh, like, you know, an identity. And it just like kind of helped them to be fleshed out in the in the moment. And, and I would just kind of keep it. Uh, you know, I, I would keep it gender neutral for that reason so that like, you know, the, the, the players as well as the audience could kind of like interpret them, uh, as they will. But as time went on, I, I tried to give it a little more thought, um, and to like focus on it. And like one of the, like, there is like a big, you know, uh, character later on that is, um, non-binary, but, uh, it's something I, I really, I really cannot take like a ton of credit for this or like any, any praise is undeserved because like, this is just something I'm trying to work on and like trying to uh illustrate but i'm i'm by no means doing a perfect or even exemplary job uh and i i think it's just like something that you know when, when you are the dm you do have a little bit more of a responsibility to um pad out uh pad out the world a little bit in that way and try and make it feel more inclusive and big uh so like it was something that i was just trying to do uh on top of everything else and like again it's something i when i dm more i want to do it more and i and i appreciate you giving me the praise for it, but like, yeah, it's it's something that I like doing. It's something I'm working on. Um, yeah, and I think it's like it's a good, cool thing that a DM can do. I fully agree, uh, and I echo that sentiment as well. I actually was just talking with Lou Wilson about this, about making sure to include uh, that the fullness and richness of the spectrum of the human experience and trying as much as possible to include that in fantastical worlds because those groups are so often like marginalized identities writ large in IRL yes. fail to be represented over and over and over again in our fantasy, uh, which has harmful real world ramifications. Uh, but I wanna echo Caldwell as well to be like, yeah, it's always like, uh, uh, whatever is being done, I think the goal is always to do it more uh, and to be better with the stories to come and improve that storytelling. And there always is like so much more room for improvement to make things more inclusive and better going forward. Uh, hell yeah to Emma. Thank you for the question. Thank you so much, Emma. Um, uh, this next one comes to us from Danny S. Danny Doodles. Uh, hey. Uh, hell yeah. Uh, howdy, Caldwell. Um, as an artist, I find myself designing elements of my game purely for cool aesthetics, neglecting key mechanics that may have consequences later on. Have you ever mm. found yourself accidentally prioritizing form over function like this? How can I avoid this? Oh boy. Um, yes, I definitely, when I've been like preparing for sessions, will catch myself being like, well, how would that, you know, how how would that giant beam emerge from the floor? Like, what are the mechanics of how, like, this would, you know, extend out? Like, and then I'll, I'll catch myself, like, doing diagrams and, like, drawings uh, to, like, help me understand it a little bit. And I think, like, it's healthy to an extent. And honestly, as a DM, you're going to be drawing maps. Like, there's just no way around that. You're going to be making some maps. Um, so I think, like, it's healthy to a degree. Luckily, um, 
my wife Susanna is very good at like catching me when I'm doing this, where it's just like you don't need to like draw like the floor plan for this wedding that is happening. Like it, it's unnecessary. Like you don't need to like design sigils for like the guards in this area. It's just yeah, I think that like having someone you can trust to like guide you um, is good. But I will say, going back to um, what we discussed earlier about like giving out scrolls. There's no nothing more fun for me than like distributing uh, pieces of art and like little like gifts at the table. So like definitely lean into it when you can, because um, it's like it's very fun to punctuate a moment with like something you've made, like whether it is like a map that you're handing out or like, you know, um, a letter with like a burnished wax seal on it or something like that. I think that like, yeah, definitely don't sweat the little touches because like those are what make an adventure special. Um but like, yeah, I, I think it, it's all about finding finding that specific balance. That is such good advice. And I think, yeah, like if you have that creative artistic ability, that mm -hmm. can so enrich a game. Like everyone, like, you know, I, as someone who doesn't have that ability, have to, you know, everyone finds their strengths to lean into and you being able to supply that cool aesthetic quality is a mm -hmm. huge gift. And it's something to be very like grateful for and definitely make use of. And I would say as well that like, um, there definitely is this kind of like calculation that you should devote a little bit of energy to. Obviously, most of your free time and energy should go towards just like prepping your sessions. Mm -hmm. But I would devote a little bit of free time to kind of measuring your ROI as a DM. Like what is the return on investment as you're creating stuff? When yeah. I first started DMing, I definitely was like, well, I'm not gonna be prepared for the session unless I, you know, have names for all the horses in the King's stable. <laughs> and then your PCs are like, King's stable, buddy, we're not even going to the fucking castle to begin with. We're gonna start a bar. And then you're like, okay, I'm totally fucked, right? Uh, but I think that you, you can feel um, over time, you will get a better and better sense of where is the work going where I am reaping big dividends in terms of like, I spent 20 minutes on that character, that magic item, that dungeon, and mm -hmm. it led to three hours of fun versus yeah. I spent four hours on this weird bit of lore and it was completely ignored and bypassed by the PCs. Just guilty. Yes, just holding up my hand just to let you know that yes. <laughs> so like, um, that's something, and you shouldn't beat yourself up if you've done that, but as you're, if you are lucky enough to have an ongoing game, mm -hmm. measuring your character's tendencies to start to go, okay, where does work yield the highest results? Um, I think is really, really beneficial. Um, and I think too, in, in terms of the other element of this question, which is like, mm -hmm. I design elements of my game purely for cool aesthetics. Um, but I neglect key mechanics that may have consequences later on. That is something that I think you can have maybe a conversation with your players about, which is what kind of consequences they should be looking for. Because I think my character, um, like sometimes my characters look for, I didn't have this conversation with DMs in the past where I will see something judge it in a larger ethical philosophical umbrella and be like, wow, that's really fucked when you think about it and have the DM <laughs> be like, Hey man, 
the yeah the dwarves in this city use elementals to power their stuff and yes i narrated that one of the elementals was screaming <laughs> don't in don't i didn't don't like not everything has to be the fucking wire with dwarves you know like <laughs> you can, don't please don't mine into the systemic what but please <laughs> Um, uh, but that, that is just an impulse that I have as a player is to, is to look, you know, like, um, yeah, uh, holes it, in the balloons. is to put, uh, like, I, uh, and I acknowledge that, that that is not always the most fun. I have to check myself sometimes because I don't, <laughs> I don't want to be the, the player that's like poking holes and like, like delving into the sociola. You know, it's like, we get to, we get to like, I remember one time, like there was a different game I was playing in where we got to this town where there were paupers. And then there was this giant, there was a giant forest of like rich fruit that belonged to the king and queen. And I was like, fucked up. There's an entire forest full of fruit and these people are going hungry out here. <laughs> and, and it was the, the DM in that campaign too. It was like, God damn it. Like, like, why, why are you doing this? Um, uh, so I will in terms say, of, yeah. Oh, there's a, I just wanted to like add an addendum, which there was a great moment where you did this while we were playing, uh, where like dead, I like asked Beverly why he believed in the very real God that gave him his power. <laughs> and I remember being like so flustered by it. Cause I was like, I, cause he's real. <laughs> Yes, it's very hard. I will say it's very hard to be an atheist in a D and D world. Yeah, because you can't. You're like, yes, they're real, but I don't like them. Um, uh, but I mean, I guess it, it works out because, like in D and D, gods are essentially like, you know, uh, capitalist overlords who, like, you know, are giving you something in exchange for your service, and like, there's not much you can do about it. But yes, you can point out that it sucks. Right. It's also very hard to, I think, to, it, by, by the same token, it's very hard to be an atheist as a D&D &D character. Also very hard to be a monotheist as a D&D &D character. It's be like, <laughs> my God is the one true God, unless we meet any of the other gods that, you know, <laughs> are out running around out here. Uh, very loose D&D. &D yeah. um, uh, but to Danny's point about that, like, aesthetics, like, sort of form over function. Yeah. Um, I think that there is a little bit of like genre and tone that can help out here. Like for example, if I were to do my logistical needling thing, like in Wonderland, I'm the asshole where it's like, <laughs> you know, if we like see Humpty Dumpty and he's like, or, or, you know, we run across like the, you know, the Mad Hatter and the March yeah. Hare being like, no room, no room. And I was like, so, you guys have a house in the woods. Do you get your food from like a grocery store? Where do you, I'm the <laughs> asshole now. Cause it's very clear that Wonderland doesn't work that way. Um, and, and uh, you know, um, so again, you try to drink out of half the teacup and it just falls out. <laughs> my disbelief actually corrodes Wonderland. <laughs> I'm like an existential threat to Wonderland. Um, oh no. Wow, the blight, the, the blight, blight has come. None of you make any fucking sense. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> dissolve the Dormouse. Um, terrible, terrible. Um, I will say, um, just on the uh, aesthetic standpoint, uh, I will use an example from uh, Dimension 20, which is every time you pull out one of those new maps, everyone loses their mind. And it is always one of the highlights of the show, like seeing everyone get so pumped for the new map to come out. And like, 
normally those are a perfect marriage of like form and function because like there are, you know, like uh, difficulty checks for like climbing stuff on those maps. And there's like, you know, like places to hide and like everything is kind of like built around the mechanics of the fight to come. But like, yeah, uh, like I think it's just all about just like, working on marrying, like finding like the union of form and function for like the stuff that you're, you know, drawing and creating for the games. I think that's exactly right. And, um, and I think too, that like, finding that union is part of the fun for you as a DM, right? Hmm. Um, because that world building is always going to be collaborative in that way. Um, gang, we, we've blown through these wonderful questions so quickly. I can't believe all the time has just flown away. Uh, Caldwell, what a true joy. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to everyone that watched and provided questions. Um, I didn't feel uh, intimidated or grilled at any point. It was a pure delight. <laughs> we have done our job. Uh, <laughs> Caldwell Tanner, thank you so much for being here today. And to everyone at home, we'll catch you next time on Adventuring Academy. Bye. Bye.